Thank you, um, Brother Delbert, for those timely and convicting thoughts. And as you were praying, the message of John the Baptist came to my mind, and that's my desire for this evening. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And behold that new covenant which he brought, the, the New Testament, and the priority of the New Testament is our subject this evening, and I am excited about the subject, although a little physically tired again, so I invite your prayers. It helps that my dear wife is here this evening, so I hope some of you will have the wonderful opportunity of meeting her afterward. And I hope that I might be forgiven for straying a little bit from the title. The expectation is that we talk about the priority of the New Testament. And my desire this evening is to do that, to talk about that, but also to encourage a love for the treasures of the Old Testament while also prioritizing or emphasizing the priority of the new. And it's my desire to get a better understanding of the relationship between the old and the new. And I invite you to listen in carefully and help me develop my own thinking and even correct, correct me if you see I need correction. Evaluate what I say and I invite your input. So when I was a boy, I was blessed with the Amish Groskme experience. Now the literal translation of Groskme is big church. I don't know if any of the rest of you ex had the, the blessing of experiencing that. Now the Groskme did not necessarily mean a gathering that was large numerically, but it was a large and long event, and it happened twice a year, once in the fall and once in the spring. And Groskme is the Amish version of communion. It's their communion service. And at 9 o'clock, you would hear the first strains of O Gott Vater, wir loben dich und deine guten Preisen. It's the Lobli. And we sang all four verses, but we sang the more modern, the faster uh, version of it, not the slow meter. And after three or four hymns, the preaching started. And as a boy, I didn't look forward to Groskme because I knew we were in for a very long day. And back then, we didn't have uh, the comfortable polished benches or padded benches like we do today that conform to your back. Rather, they were straight benches, and the backs went up straight, and they came up about halfway or less on a man's back, and there were no smooth edges to the benches, and I knew we were going to be in for a long day, and there was no real good way to get comfortable on those benches. And the preachers would get up then, and they'd stand behind a table, facing the congregation, the table that was on the same level as the congregation. And I have fond memories of that now. And these were preachers like Alvin Schrock and Jonas Hirschberger and Alvin Miller. And they would get up behind that table 
and they'd turn to Genesis chapter 1. And they'd start with Genesis chapter 1, and they began to tell the story of the Bible in their own words. And we knew we weren't going to go home that evening, that day, until one of the preachers turned the final chapters in the book of Revelation. As I said, it was going to be a long day. And we were usually at church until 3 o'clock in the afternoon or, or later. We were dismissed in time for the farmers to get home for the evening milking. <clears throat> and those preachers wouldn't cover every story in the Bible, of course. They would hit the high points of the main stories like the creation, Enoch, uh, Noah, the flood, Abraham and Lot, and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs, the 400 years in Egypt, Moses, Joshua, Saul, Eli, and Samuel, and some of the prophets, King David, of course. And the story of Rahab was almost always covered there in those Old Testament accounts. And they would talk about that scarlet thread that hung down over the wall that she hung there to mark her house. And they used that to kind of trace the story of redemption through the Messianic line in the Old Testament. And then some of those preachers would get a little imaginative and they would add details that weren't in the text, but that made it interesting. And they wove that scarlet thread through the stories in the Old Testament all the way up to lunchtime when they closed the chapter on the book of Malachi. And then in our conservative beachy setting, and they were telling these stories, by the way, in the Pennsylvania German, and in our, in our setting, we would then, at 12 o'clock or so, we'd go to our cars and mom had a packed lunch fixed, and she'd pack ham sandwiches and celery sticks, and then we'd enjoy about a 20-minute break out there. And by about 12.30, we were back in the church for another hour and a half to two-hour journey uh, through the Gospels. And we finished off with the suffering of Jesus and his death and resurrection and followed by the communion service. And at some point then, they, they went further into the book of Revelation. I don't remember how they exactly did that. That's still roughly the format of the Amish communion service, a six-hour journey through the Bible twice a year. And I really think they're on to something. How about that? Uh, is this something our people could get excited about? Well, <clears throat> hearing the, the sweeping narrative of the sacred scriptures Hearing that being told twice a year in everyday language in a single session, I think is one good way to help develop a proper understanding of the relationship between the Old and New Testament. It really does something to tie those old accounts, to get those two accounts together. And one of the things that it did for me, for better or for worse, and I, I confess to you, I am, I'm, I am bringing to light here in Harrisonburg, Virginia, certain leanings of mine, but as it relates to Israel and all that, but they had a way of making you feel like you were Israel, like you were a part of the people of God. They tied all that together. Yeah, we're like them. We're separated from the world, and we're in, we're in the church together. That was kind of the idea that, that came in, and... <clears throat> But since my teens, I have been a member of Pilgrim Fellowship, this beachy Amish congregation, 
And there we were kind of happy to lay aside some of those old order traditions. But I think laying aside this tradition of retelling the biblical story twice a year, I think laying that aside has maybe come with some unintended consequences because the pendulum never stands still, does it? And from my perspective now, it seems to me that the Old Testament has been relegated to a position maybe of lesser importance than it deserves. Am I the only one here who thinks like that? I tend to think maybe the Old Testament uh, has been pushed aside a little bit. And the longer I read and the more I study, the more I realize how much undiscovered treasure there is in the Old Testament. How much of the Old Testament is quoted in the New and how many lessons there are to learn in the Old Testament. So I said, as, begin as I said at the beginning, my desire is to emphasize the priority of the New Testament while at the same time maybe trying to cultivate a greater love for the Old. So let's talk about the treasure of the Old Testament here a little bit more. And we remember that Paul wrote to Timothy in that second letter to Timothy there in chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17. He said, all scripture, all grapha, all the writings are breathed out by God, and they're profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. My question to you, brothers, tonight is, which part of the New Testament was, was Paul talking about here? I see a few smiles and a few shaking heads, and yeah, we know that he's probably talking about the sacred writings of the people of Israel. He's probably talking about the Old Testament and likely the Septuagint. And he says that the Old Testament is profitable for doctrine. For doctrine? How is the Old Testament profitable for doctrine? Well, think about, is it profitable on the doctrine of origins? Or on the doctrine maybe of marriage? On some doctrines concerning morality? What about being profitable for reproof or correction? And we can think about many stories in the Old Testament where there were the failures of people like Eli, Saul, and David, and a whole bunch of people's failures. They can speak in terms of reproof and correction, those stories and all the Proverbs. Now let's think about instruction in righteousness and even let's think about it in terms of the New Testament idea of righteousness, justification. Where would you turn to in the Old Testament to see how a man is justified and finds peace with God through the gospel? Where would you turn to find that? Well, here's kind of a trick question, but not really a trick question. Because there is actually a place that is identified where the gospel is first preached. Some One of you brothers uh, remind us where that place is found. For it is said that the gospel is first preached. Now you're thinking hard because you don't want to be the only one wrong here. I know that. <laughs> All right. So... Okay, I'll just tell you, if you go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, you know, that, I just stumbled onto this one time. I, I would just like you, I wouldn't have known it. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto who? Unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. And we know the mother passage, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where it says, 
and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Right there we have the gospel preached according to Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Twelve chapters in. Now if you just go further, uh, three more chapters in the book of Genesis. You come to Genesis chapter 15, and there we have this Gentile man. I guess there were Gentiles back there. That would be Abraham. He's standing outside there. He's looking up at the heavens. And what is he doing? He's claiming the promises of God. God told him, your descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven. And he's claiming those promises. He doesn't know how they're going to be fulfilled, but he saw them afar off. And he embraced them. And he confessed that he was a stranger and pilgrim on the earth, as Hebrew writer says. Do you know what? You remember what Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 says about Abraham at that moment? It says right there in Genesis chapter 16, 15, verse 6, that he believed in God. And what's the rest of it? It was counted unto him for righteousness. It's a long way from Romans 15 to from Genesis 15 to Romans chapter 4. But in Romans chapter 4, we remember that Paul refers back to that scripture and he uses the example of Abraham being justified by faith to say that a man is justified without the works of the law because Abraham wasn't circumcised there yet at the point he was declared righteous by faith. Right there, 15 chapters in, we have the gospel. How does a man get peace with God? He, he gets it by faith. And he, his faith is counted to him for righteousness. We got Romans in Genesis chapter 15. Think about the treasure that is there. All right, so now in 2 Peter, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17, there we find the effect of, of 3.16. If the man of God allows those scriptures, presumably the Old Testament scriptures, to be profitable in his life for doctrine, reproof, correction, and even instruction in righteousness, that man of God will be made perfect. He will be well equipped for every good work. And that's just the Old Testament scriptures. What about the incredible, infinite treasure of the New Testament coming on top of that? And if the Old Testament is sufficient to make one wise unto salvation, which is what 2 Timothy 3.15 says, and to equip the man of God for every good work, what about the power of the, of the, of the New Testament? And if, if we'd have time, we'd turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9-11, to 11, where the ministration of the Spirit is noted there. How much more glorious is the ministration of the Spirit there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? And Jesus told the Pharisees, we're still talking about the treasures of the Old Testament. He said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The Old Testament scriptures do bear witness to Christ. And remember last night we noted that Jesus taught there to those disciples in Luke chapter 24 that the prophecies about himself, they were found in where? In the prophets, in the Psalms, and in the law of Moses. And what they said about him was that, number one, he would suffer, he would die, he would rise from the dead, repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, and even specifically beginning in Jerusalem. I'm not sure where all that's found, but that's what our master said. 
That's what Moses, the prophet, and the Psalms taught about him. Now that is amazing, the treasures that are found in the Old Testament. And one of the ways to enjoy those treasures, and I'm sure you've noted it too, but I really have kind of stumbled on this more in recent years, and I'm really fascinated by the sermons in the book of Acts. You go to uh, Peter's sermon, for example, in Acts chapter 2, that first sermon, and I'm sure you've probably noted that about two-thirds of Peter's sermon is Old Testament scriptures quoted. About two-thirds, or maybe more than that. Then you've got his sermons in Acts chapter 3, 4, 10, and 11. You've got Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. And then you've got Paul's sermons in Acts 13, 14, 17, 22. And let's go to chapter 26. And we'll note the subject of Paul's sermons, at least to the Jewish people, and I think also the implication is to the Gentile people. He said in Acts chapter 26, verses 22 and 23, Here's what he talked about when he preached. Um, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. So where did he get his information from? Of course, he was an eyewitness too, but he didn't say anything except what the prophets and Moses would say. So right there we have it. There's this infinite, this vast treasure that remains to be discovered in the Old Testament. But that's not even our topic tonight. we got to get to the priority of the New Testament. So let's roll. The Anabaptists and the priority of the New Testament. I think it could probably be said that the Anabaptists were possibly uh, responsible for making the priority of the New Testament even an issue. Because we remember that during the centuries of Christendom, when church and state were together, many ethical and moral issues, because of the way Christendom worked, you had the government and the church together, many moral and ethical issues were decided from the Old Testament because they were kind of gone by, I guess, by the nation of Israel. And one of those issues was, of course, infant baptism. Both the Catholic and Reformed defenders of infant baptism, they appealed to the to the Old Testament custom of circumcising baby males as analogous to child baptism. So they they circumcised the baby males back in the Old Testament and brought it forward to child baptism in the New Testament. Not everything's consistent there, of course, but they used that. Around the time of Augustine on issues such as war oaths and laying up possessions, the church state combination, they increasingly went to the Old Testament and the Israelite state to decide how Christians should live. They did that. They kind of went to the Old Testament. The early Christians, we remember, did go to the teachings of Jesus, and they were different. But after around the time of Augustine, this approach then allowed churchmen to live outside the clear teachings of Jesus and his apostles. And back then, and for a thousand years, it was kind of thought that, yeah, if you were a really devout Christian, you might live according to the Sermon on the Mount especially if you lived in the monastic orders. If you were a monk, then you you were really devout and you you could live out the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount for rank-and-file Christian, it wasn't expected. It was just simply too impractical to live according to the teachings of Jesus. And in that way, the teachings of Jesus were rendered virtually impotent in the life of the average churchman. And of course, he had the whole system of of, um, the saints and indulgences where you could buy... Uh, rights or whatever, uh, and you know, the, the saints stored up 
uh, good works, and you could get a hold of that. And it was really a very corrupted system. But that was the status quo of biblical interpretation for a thousand plus years. That the overall, in what is called the church, they just didn't really get a hold of Jesus' teachings. And the reformers did not break with the Catholic Church on this basic understanding of Scripture either. As a whole, they didn't. But then the, there was this little group of people that came along, and there have been countless groups like that, not only the Anabaptists. They just come along, and they, they got regenerated. That's what happened. They got changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came into them, and they got the Holy Spirit, and they decided to, they should be baptized as adults. And they had a commitment to follow Christ at any cost. And especially they had a vision for a pure church. And especially they had a passion for reading the scriptures, both old and new. They studied those scriptures. And you've read some of their letters. And you note that in their letters that they wrote, it was almost a continuous stream of quotations from the scriptures, both old and new testament. They were remarkably literate in both testaments. And they would confound those who were questioning them. And they saw, those people did, and people like the Anabaptists, they saw the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles as normative for those who were baptized and part of the church. And that was a revolutionary idea. And they considered the ethical standards of the Old Testament to kind of be pre-gospel standards of behavior. And of course, when Jesus came bringing regeneration, the new birth, a new way of life, a changed heart, of course there should be different kind of behavior. So the center of gravity for them shifted from the Old Testament to the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. And of course, there was a new ethic now that was brought by Jesus at, to these new kinds of human beings who were rebirthed now. And so the reformers, though, I understand, they did also go to the New Testament, but in many ways, it was as a way to kind of develop an understanding of righteousness to get a theological answer for justification and salvation. And so they, they went to the, the, especially they emphasized Romans and the epistles because there we learn how to uh, receive righteousness by faith. But the tendency was still to go to the Old Testament for ethical standards of behavior and thereby still the reformers also tended to neglect the teachings of Jesus in the sermon on the Mount. So the title, the priority of the New Testament, implies that there is a correct way to understand the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. How did the Anabaptists understand that relationship? And what is the proper way for us to understand it? And I made the case at the beginning that there is a vast treasure still to be discovered in the Old Testament. And here are some quotations from the Anabaptist writings that kind of reveal how they thought about the relationship between the old and the new. So there was the Bern debate of 1538. And again, these quotations are coming from the book by Stuart Murray, um, Anabaptist Interpretation of Scripture. That's not the exact title. I forget the title right now. Here's the Bern debate. We grant it, that is the Old Testament validity, wherever Christ has not suspended it and wherever it agrees with the new. In other words, they, they, they said, wherever Christ hasn't suspended the Old Testament, and wherever the Old Testament agrees with the new, there we em embrace the Old Testament. Dirk Phillips, the true interpreter must develop an hermeneutic which is conscious of the division between the two testament, and yet can discover their underlying unity. Dirk is saying, you gotta understand 
the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament, but they still understand their underlying unity. And I think their underlying unity there was the realization that Christ was found both in the Old and the New. He was in the Old concealed and in the New revealed, as the old saying goes. He's in both Testaments. That's what unified the Old and the New. And the Anabaptist, Stuart Murray, says on page 102, urged that the New Testament alone should be the basis for ethical discussion. The New Testament alone. And here's an example of that. Dirk Phillips said, God through Moses had commanded to kill the false prophets. But that is a command of the Old Testament, not the New Testament. And he goes on and says, over against that, we have received another command from the Lord that we should watch out for the false prophets whom we should not hear. And we should shun a heretical person and commend the judgment of them over to God. That comes from the Congregation of God by Dirk. And here he makes the point that the Old Testament taught that false prophets should be killed. But the New Testament has a different standard, namely that we should only watch out for false prophets and shun the heretical people. And that's quite a difference between killing them and shunning them. And sometimes, you know, Anabaptist people, certain groups especially, might get criticized for the kind of extreme positions that they may have taken on social avoidance and things like that. But a good response might be if you have, if you're talking to one of your reformed friends who's complaining about that, you could say, well, there's a big difference between execution and excommunication, and we've not been guilty of execution. <laughs> All right, so... <clears throat> The reformers were still executing people in the name of Christ. And today, those who follow reformed doctrine still find it permissible as a Christian to kill people in the service of one's country as a minister of God. That's still in reformed theology. We still differ from that all the way back to those early days. Now, in trying to understand the relationship between the old and the new, I find myself agreeing with Pilgrim Marpeck. And you remember, he was one of those Anabaptist leaders that maybe nobody's ever heard of, but we have heard of him, and we know that he was an Austrian leader, and I'll borrow and adopt, adapt his view. And I'll use, I'll use a story about my own family. So growing up, in the 1960s, my dad built a basement house, and he built this house that we lived in for a while, and he built the one side and the one end kind of up against a hill, a small hill. And his intention was to eventually build on top of the basement. And we lived in that basement for approximately six or seven years. I don't remember exactly. But one of the design flaws in that basement house was the roof. It was a flat roof. And he was not really a builder. And so what he put on that roof was tar paper and a layer of tar, as I remember. And of course, it didn't take very long, just a few years in that flat roof, before it started to leak, to leak pretty badly. And at first, my wife would, I mean, sorry, my, uh, my father would just get up on the roof and he would try to put more tar on wherever he thought the leak was. But it didn't work very well, and soon, during heavy rains, we'd have to bring out the pots and pans and catch the drips. And I have mostly fond memories of living in that basement. 
And it's true, we were partway up against the, the ground and the house was a bit damp and we didn't know much about mold back then. We found out later there was a big problem. And the side that was against the hill, it, it had like windows, small windows up at the top with window wells. So there was a little bit of dim light coming through there. And it got to smelling a bit, a bit dank in some of the rooms after a while. But my bedroom was on the far side of the house and I could look out kind of at ground level and, and see some things. But then things came to a head one day. Uh, during a rainstorm, a severe rainstorm, there was a, a bad leak in the one bedroom. And Dad was off at work. And I have this mental picture of my mother standing on a stepladder near the top of the ladder. And she had both arms stretched out up against the ceiling. And she was trying to hold back a piece of drywall that was bulging down from a puddle that had collected on top of the drywall. But she was unsuccessful. And while she was standing there trying to hold up that piece of drywall, it actually let loose. And it came down on top of her and around her as she was on that ladder. And suffice it to say that it seemed that my dad seemed more motivated then, after that, <laughs> to uh, finish the house. <laughs> And he got it finished. And I think we moved upstairs in about 1972. But Pilgrim Marpeck's view of the relationship between the Old and the New Testament was that the Old Testament was the foundation of the house and the New Testament was the house itself. And I like that. The foundation is important, but it is not the same as the house and the two must be distinguished, is what he said. So I like to think of the Old Testament as the basement and of the upstairs as the New Testament. And the foundation walls of the basement are necessary for the upper stories. And the basement isn't a bad place to live for a time, but the roof eventually leaks and the air is a bit damp and the light is dim. And it's time to move upstairs when we can. The upstairs part of the, of the house, the New Testament, has now been built. It rests on the foundation of the basement and is built over the basement. It has a good roof that keeps out the water. It has good clean air. It has a good heating system. And you can open the windows in the summertime uh, to let plenty of air in. There's plenty of light, many windows. There's bright sunlight coming in and a grand view out across the valley. Why would you want to live in the basement when you can live upstairs? That's the question. And of course, there's still reason to go into the basement from time to time. There's a great deal of treasure stored there, and it's enjoyable to go down and sift through your fingers the, the gold and the silver and, and the jewels and the diamonds. Of course, that's not literal now. It's not true to life. But it's helpful to do that once in a while spiritually and it's good to check the foundation walls once in a while to see what we're built on top of. There's many helpful stories of life back in the day when we used to live in that old basement, like the time my sister was standing in front of the sink doing her most hated job, washing the dishes. And this is true, by the way. And she said, I wish I could break my arm so that I wouldn't have to wash the dishes. And do you know what? Right at that moment, as soon as she said those words, she slipped and fell on the concrete floor and did indeed break her arm. 
As we think of some of the things that happened back there in those old basement days, this verse comes to mind. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured. <laughs> and all these things happen unto them for in samples and are written for your admonition. We go to the basement for many profitable things. But we don't live in the basement, do we? We don't have to live in the basement. And that might be a good answer for those times we find ourselves in discussion with our reformed friends on subjects such as war and divorce. Why would we want to live in the basement when we can live upstairs? So, why do we believe, actually, that the New Testament takes priority over the Old Testament? And I want to close with some thoughts here for the last 15 or 20 minutes. Why do we believe that the New Testament takes priority over the Old Testament? And that's a really good question. Is that's, we better have a scriptural basis for that or a philosophical basis or both. And we do. And I only have three points here, and I put them together kind of fast, and I'm sure there's many more you could add and probably a better approach, but here's what I have. And I think we would, we would all agree that the basis for our belief that the New Testament is and takes priority over the Old Testament is because of the authority of the one who died for us and rose again because of the authority of Christ. He said there at the end of Matthew chapter 28 that all power, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And we see it in his teachings. And let's go to Matthew chapter 5 and note those six places, at least, at least six places, where his authority is dramatic and powerful and revolutionary, None, nothing less than revolutionary. Here are these six, six places in Matthew chapter 25 where he fulfills the law. He doesn't put away the law. He doesn't minimize the law. Rather, he fulfills it by raising the ethical standards for those born into his kingdom. So we go to Matthew chapter 5 now, and I'm just going to read these six verses that are so familiar to us, just try to remind us of the authority of Christ in verse 21 and 22. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. In verses 27 and 28, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And then going to 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give a, her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever marry, shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. 33 and 34. Again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, and so on. And then over in verse 38 and 39. Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him, <clears throat> to him the other also. And in verse 43 and 44, ye have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And right there we have six portrayals of Christ's supreme authority. But I say unto you, and again we say, he's not, he's not contradicting in any way or taking away, denigrating the old law in any way. He's merely fulfilling the law by giving his power, his followers the power to live above the law. And this is the section of scripture, sadly, brothers and sisters, that many groups throughout history have said is just too impractical. And they've missed the authority of Christ here. And maybe we miss it in a practical sense. And we know what it says, but do we actually follow him where he says, but I say unto you. Let's list those six revolutionary standards of ethical behavior. A revolutionary standard of respect for our brother there in the first two verses we read. To hold our brother in contempt. If you call your brother a fool or think of him as a fool, that incurs the same judgment as killing him. And then we have this revolutionary standard of purity. Lust is adultery. A revolutionary standard of faithfulness. Divorce and remarriage is adultery. A revolutionary standard of honesty. You don't use oaths anymore. Just say what you mean, he says. And oath comes from evil. And this is a big deal uh, with the Anabaptists and the Reformers back then and still is. And then we have a revolutionary new kind of defense, which is basically defensive lessness. There's... He says there in verses uh, 39 and 40, or 38 and 39, don't resist evil. Take a posture of defenselessness, defensivelessness. And there you have a new kind, a revolutionary kind of defense. And then we have a revolutionary standard of love, to love your enemies, to, good, to do good to them. And we, talk, we could talk about the, the difference that these, this revolution that Christ brought through this new standard of behavior made possible through regeneration, the rebirthing of the human being, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And maybe we can just touch a little bit on one thing, and we note that two of these new ethic standards of ethics have to do with sexual uh, purity uh, in verses uh, 28, uh, 27 and 28, and then again in 32 and 33 where he talks about divorce. Um, and he, you know, so the whole thing there that happened with followers of Jesus, and if you've done any study at all on the history of the Roman Empire and the the morality of the day, it was really, really horrible. And there were things back then that were a thousand-year institution having to do with uh, older men and boys that is, you know, is too terrible to even think about or talk about, but it was accepted in society. The Greek philosophers like Aristotle, Aristotle and Plato praised those things. It was an accepted institution in society, and we know that all sorts of immorality was going on. Uh, a Roman man was not really expected to be faithful to his wife, multiple partners, likewise with the wife. There was just the society was just rife with this uh, immorality. Where did we get the judo-Christian values that we kind of used to have in Western culture, but we're losing fast? 
Where did we get those? You know what happened? In the middle of that perversion, like Rome, Rome and Corinth, there were little bands of people, little, little groups of people, a family here and a family there, that came to the, this, te- this revolutionary teaching, and they said, yeah, we're not going to divorce like everybody else is doing. We're going to keep ourselves pure. And what happened is the rights of women were lifted up. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what Paul taught there about the rights of the married partner over each other, that was a revolutionary thing. Because until then, the woman was considered basically the property of a man. So what Jesus taught here raised the whole Roman society. And, and, it, and because the, 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 even those who were part of the state church actually started to live more moral lives. And we ended up then, 1,500 years later, with the thing we call Judo-Christian morals because the teachings of Jesus, like the mustard seed, gradually changed the whole society's practices on these moral issues. So I haven't given up hope for the power of the gospel today, and the seed of the kingdom is still the same. So <clears throat> let's talk about the authority. We're talking about why we think that the New Testament uh, has, has priority, and we talked about the authority of Christ and what his kingdom did. We can talk about the authority of Christ's apostles. And I, I really have I learned to think of the apostles, such all the apostles, as Christ's apostles. Not the apostles, but Christ's apostles. They were extensions of his ministry. He called them, he chose them, and he sent them out. And what they said would have been what Christ would say. They were his apostles with authority given to them by Christ. And of course, we have Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. We have Mark, probably written by John Mark, and he was probably tutored by the Apostle Peter, they think. He went, he went with um, the Apostle Paul in his journey. We have Luke, who was a companion of the Apostle Paul, and Acts, of course. We have John, the, the Apostle of Jesus, called by him. Uh, the Epistles of John and Revelation. <clears throat> we got Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and probably Hebrews all written by the man who's probably the most influential man outside of Jesus Christ who ever lived, personally called and sent by Jesus. He was Jesus' apostle sent out by Jesus to give his words. And so we have this New Testament that is the teaching of Jesus and those men whom he called and sent out. That's why it has priority over the Old Testament. And we're not quite sure about James and Jude, where they fit in, but they were possibly apostles. Now we're going to look finally at a third reason why we think that the New Testament has priority, and that has to do with the fact that we're in a better testament or a better covenant. And we remember that those two terms can be used interchangeably. A covenant is a testament. A testament is a covenant, essentially. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 7. And we have here, from Matthew to Revelation, we have the documents of a new covenant, a new testament. And they are part of a new reality. This new, better covenant, it, <coughs> excuse me, is based on the reality of who Christ is. Hebrews chapter 7 in verses 22 to 25. Hebrews 7, verse 22. 
I'm breaking in here. Um, in fact, let me back up to verse 21. For those priests who were made without an oath were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety or a guarantor of a better testament or better covenant as the newer translations say. But the King James says he was made a guarantor of a better testament. There you have it. It's a better testament than the old. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Does this sound like the upstairs or the basement right here? Sounds to me like the upstairs. And here's what's, what's going on here is that we have here Jesus compared as the high priest of the better testament. He's compared to the high priest of the old covenant. And I don't know how many of those there were. There were quite a few high priests in the Old Testament under the old covenant system. But they all died. What would it be like if you were in the camp of Israel and you were depending on this man once a year to go into the temple and make atonement for your sins and you hoped he did everything right or it wouldn't work maybe and then, then all of a sudden he dies. What are you going to do now? Well, what if the fellow is a scoundrel actually? And there were some of those. How could you trust him? Eventually he's going to die. Then what are you going to do? We're going to have to have another priest uh, ordained, brought into the office. Now he's going to have to be the high priest. They kept changing. But the comparison, of course, here is that because our high priest in the new covenant never dies, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Nothing's ever going to change, folks. He's alive forevermore, and for that reason, he can save completely all the way to the end those who come to God by faith in him because he's always going to live, he's always going to make intercession for us, regardless of what you're suffering from, regardless of what you're going through uh, as, as a church leader or as a wife of a church leader or as a faithful member in the church, whatever struggles you're going through, we can have this rock-solid assurance that Jesus is alive forevermore and he's able to save us to the uttermost because he's ever living to make intercession for us. That sounds to me like a better covenant, doesn't, doesn't it? Than that high priest going into that uh, tent of, made of animal skins once a year making atonement. This sounds to me like a whole lot better testament than that Old Testament. Praise the Lord. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And I'm so happy to be living upstairs where it's bright and sunny and where you can see far into the distance. And if you look long and hard, you can actually see the spires of that city that's about to come. The new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. So, how do we make this practical? How can we appreciate the new covenant? Well, in the New Testament. Well, I was uh, very blessed this evening. I was talking with a brother here 
from a little bit south of here, and he said their ministry is already doing this. They, they are taking the Sermon on the Mount and they're dividing it into sections and they're team preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. They're taking turns. I guess somebody, excuse me, somebody kind of maps it out and then they follow that schedule. If you have any questions about that, you could talk to Brother Ralph Miller, who's back here. So we just buried this past Sunday, less than a week ago, we buried this dear woman, Barbara Hirschberger. She and her husband gave some time at Christian Light a number of years ago. And I had the opportunity of seeing her Bible and looking through her Bible. And that Bible was about as marked up of any Bible as any, any person's Bible I've ever seen. And it was kind of falling apart. You know, they say if a person's Bible is falling apart, they probably aren't. Well, she was that kind of woman. She was just a faithful, joyful woman. And she loved her Bible. And she, would, she was a true Anabaptist. Why do I know that? Because I opened up that Bible to the first part of the New Testament and looked at Matthew chapter 5. And would you believe it? Every single verse in Matthew chapter 5, except the first two verses, was highlighted. Every single verse. She'd taken a highlighter across that whole chapter and highlighted every single verse. And not only that, in addition, about two-thirds of the verses were underlined. So highlighted and underlined. Now, she was emphasizing the Sermon on the Mount. And I say, brothers and sisters, that is, those are the marks of an Anabaptist and a kingdom Christian with New Testament priority. Maybe, maybe we could think about reading through the Sermon on the Mount once a day for 30 days. That might be revolutionary for us. Have we thought about reading through the Gospels several times a year? How shall we follow him who has been given all authority in heaven and in earth and who's promised to save us to the uttermost? How would, have, how would he have us feed our sheep? How would he have us do it? I think he would have us do it by giving priority to the New Testament while exploring the treasures of the old. May God bless you all as you continue in your mission.